Welcome to the Virtual CISO Chronicles, a podcast about cybersecurity, entrepreneurship, and business. Each week, I interview an expert working in the field of security. I'm your host, Caroline McCaffrey, one of the co-founders of ClearOps, a generative AI platform for VCSOs and security experts. For years, I was the general counsel for various startups. And at that time, I suffered what I call the security questionnaire problem. So one day I figured if no one else is solving that problem, I'll do it. I started this podcast because I went running one day and I tried to find a podcast on virtual CISOs, but I only found two. So just like how I started Clear Apps, I thought, hey, I'll start a podcast. <laughs> Our guest today is Nicholas Bakewell. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Let's get it going. Please tell the audience, the listeners, your background and where your passion for cybersecurity came from. Absolutely. So my background began back in my college days. I was a computer science major. And back then there was only computer science. No, no of these, none of these derivatives you see now in college majors, but it uh, ignited a passion for um, that kind of algorithmic mentality and, and problem solving set. However, I family history of military service. So I decided to go into the military uh, for a few years and ended up loving it. So did I eight years in the Marine Corps, but had an opportunity towards the end of my Marine Corps career, career to get a master's degree in information technology management and was doing my payback tour at a unit that was performing certification and accreditations of Marine Corps classified and unclassified networks, um, according to the DOD risk management framework. That was the last bill I had when I entered into the civilian workforce, so I decided to stay in that um, general realm of expertise. Interesting. Um, as you just said something that uh, I, I'm not going to be able to repeat because it was specific language, but sort of like you were in the Marine Corps and you took advantage of uh, the ability to learn about information systems and secu- security. What is that? What do you mean by you had an opportunity to be able to learn something that was not it was sort of tangential to the Marine Corps. Sure. So uh, any anyone with military service probably gets a kick out of kick out of the idea of a lot of times you're voluntold to go do something, right? Yep. So it wasn't so much that um, I had the option, but it was actually very good for my own interests. They sent me to graduate school uh, while I was still in active active duty service. Hmm. Uh, got a degree in information technology management, and then as part of what we call a payback tour because now I've been trained with that skill set. They brought me to a unit at their headquarters uh, where I was doing cybersecurity related uh, processes and, and control work for their information system networks. And it was throughout that time I had really delving into specific requirements for federal entities. Hmm. Uh, I developed a passion for the compliance aspect of cybersecurity. And when I exited the Marine Corps looking for a civilian job, um, contractors that work with the DOD have to follow subsets of uh-huh. requirements, which I was already familiar with. So it kind of, it was a, I had a background in it and I also had an interest in it. So it was an easy kind of slide over into the other side of the house. Yeah, that makes sense. And you said you started off with a degree or studying computer science, and then you went into the Marine Corps and then into now security. I, 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 I feel like there's something in there about your uh, skills and your interest where you're seeing uh, sort of that path as being um, optimal for you. <laughs> and I'm struggling with the question here, but I'm, I'm just, it, to me, that's not, an, it's not a straight line path. 
so curious how how you said to yourself, hey, I'm in the Marine Corps, and I'm going to go, you know, into security. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, it certainly wasn't a straight path as, as life has it. You know, you, you kind of twist and turns. Even 15 years ago when I was completing my undergrad degree in computer science, there was zero mention or awareness of cybersecurity within the programming field. And it was, you know, the field itself was starting to come to be. Uh, but as far as learning to program and algorithm development and all this, this and that, security considerations were minimal, if non-existent. When, uh, after about six years of Marine Corps service at that point, when they uh, selected me for graduate school, they said, okay, we're gonna send you to graduate school. What degree would you like? And I was like, oh, let, let's do a master's in computer science. Cause uh, I like that. And they said, nope, we're gonna send you to IT management with a focus on cybersecurity. Um, up until that point, I was only tangentially aware of cybersecurity endeavors, you know, hearing this and that, but um, having the voluntold opportunity uh, turned into a, a very um, eye-opening experience. I realized, hey, I love IT. I love this um, mindset I developed from my programming days of approaching these types of problems. And now I'm being exposed to, which at the time was uh, 2015, 2016, um, current cybersecurity endeavors. I kind of saw how they do go hand in hand and having that background in programming where, where you're looking at things from an algorithmic perspective is actually, as I found out, very beneficial when you're looking at um, cybersecurity problems because most of them are, are, there's a distinct process and procedure to approaching them, expected inputs, expected outputs, much like a programming mindset. Yeah. And then you talked about how now you're, or you, you were fully aware of governments working with contractors and subcontractors and applying the cybersecurity requirements on the apply to cybersecurity requirements on them. And so that's where you're focusing your business now. Is that correct. correct? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about what you're doing right now in that Absolutely. sense? So I'm going to throw out some acronyms and some terminology there that uh, I'm sure most viewers will probably be aware of, but I will define them as I go. So I work for, uh, I work with and for companies in the defense industrial base, which Given anybody's estimate, ranges from eighty thousand to three hundred thousand companies. It's really hard to say when you when you talk about sub tier suppliers. But any company that does do work in the defense industrial base, whether or not they're a prime contractor or maybe the three or four rungs down, just subcontracting, they do have to abide by all uh, applicable DFARS regulations, Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation supplements. Uh, as far as the cybersecurity realm, there's a couple that are really pertinent to all defense contractors, and that's DFARS 252.204-7012, better known as the NIST 800-171 requirement, uh, which is a set of 110 um, explicit cybersecurity controls. And then going hand in hand with that DFARS 7021, which is the upcoming cybersecurity maturity model certification, which uh, is, you know, is, all, is all the rage nowadays when we're actually published. But all that is, you know, DFARS, that the DFARS that prescribed 800-171, for those of you familiar with that document, it is just a subset of the document 853, which is the set of cybersecurity controls that cover confidentiality, integrity, and availability for all federal entities. So during my last couple of years in the Marine Corps, when I was focused on certification and accreditation of Marine Corps networks, we were a federal entity, of course. And so uh -huh. we were looking at the 853 catalog. When I made the transition to the defense industrial base side of the house, having to implement the 800-171 controls was a natural step for me because I was already familiar with the broad control set. And now I was just focusing on a more 
tailored control set. How, sorry to interrupt, but how many controls are there in the 853? Just in case people. Well, depending don't on know. how you tailor it, because you have to uh, you have to use the FIPS document to ensure are you a low, moderate, or high impact, etc. But um, you're looking at about a thousand controls uh, to choose from here. You know, your your catalog of controls plus or minus some. And and so with 800-171, you just said 110. So a limited amount of the 853, but they the um, it is required uh, all 110 are followed by primes and subs, right? That's correct. And in fact, one of the areas of awareness that a, as a virtual assistant working for DIB companies I've been trying to educate is it doesn't just stop at the 110 explicit controls. You need to understand the methodology behind how NIST created 800171. They did a lot of tailoring out of certain controls that they labeled as these are just presumed to already be happening. They they looked at just confidentiality. They didn't care about integrity or availability, not because that's not important to a security program, but because when the government is considering we're giving our data, controlled unclassified information to non-government entities, what do we want to ensure the minimum baseline security requirements that they're treating our data with. So as I interact with members of the defense industrial base, um, this awareness, this kind of erroneous focus on just 110 controls is something that I'm providing education and awareness around of. There's a lot more than 110 because those are only the ones that are explicitly stated. There are still um, 60 plus controls that are implicitly required, as well as the fact that if you built your security program purely on 800-171, you are not taking into account the integrity of your data or the availability of your data. So certain companies struggle with a mindset of being so focused on compliance that they're not viewing the, the overarching picture of how do I protect you know, my business intellectual property and my, the well-being of my business, not just getting that compliance check mark. So that's part of my kind of call to action of why I decided to start Redwood and, and engage as a virtual assistant to these uh, companies within the DIB to, to provide a better level of raising the bar on our situational awareness. So how do you, you get a new customer and you say, and they're, they're solely focused on, I'm working with the government and I have to do this, right? I got to do this compliance thing. How are you getting them over that hump of, let's not just focus on this being a compliance, let's actually focus on improving your business because at the end of the day, this is going to have a much broader better, stronger impact for you? It's kind of a three-prong approach. So the first, and the first one I hit is providing the context, the background awareness. Um, usually only takes maybe 30 or 45 minutes, but just walking them through, how did we get to 800 back in 2015, becoming a requirement in December of 17? And, you know, they might just now be hearing about it. I just heard about it last year because CMC started really ramping up. So giving the, you know, the senior management, the decision makers of their organizations, the um, not in-depth knowledge, because if they had the in-depth knowledge, they wouldn't need to engage a, a virtual CISO, but enough of context where they understand this is not just kind of a, a random thing that is just happening. The second part is, while fully understanding that CMMC will become, you know, a black and white requirement for participants in the DIB, you, you have to have it. It becomes a, you know, a business, an existential issue for your business if you want to participate in government contracts. But um, as the saying goes, those of us who are in the industry, this, you know, almost becomes cliche, but it is incredibly true of 
you know, a compliance-driven security department does not equal good security. However, a security program that is founded on good principles will naturally produce a compliant state. Now, you may have to you know, dot a few I's, cross a few T's, depending on what compliance requirement you're actually trying to achieve. But um, actually, if you try to quickly force your security program to get into a compliant state with, say, 800-171, you tend to take longer in achieving your objectives than if you just approach it from a, what do we need to do to, in, to institute a comprehensive security program within our organization? And then the last aspect of, the, of that three-prong approach is federal regulations, um, private sector, public sector regulations are only ever going to increase. And so mm -hmm. if we take this mentality of, hey, let's just, instead of just trying to put a Band-Aid on these security controls and just get by and eat by that assessment, eat by that self-attestation, eat by that SPRS score, you know, CMMC is just, you know, the first new thing to come along in a while, but there's going to be a continuous progression where, you know, we may eventually see a model three. We may eventually, or we, I'm, I'm assuming we will eventually get some more zero trust architecture federal requirements for DIB contractors. It's only going to grow. So we take an opportunity now to say, let's get this right from the get-go, how that we are better positioned to adjust to future federal requirements, which will come. And we're not having to jump through the gates again, like a lot of DIB companies are experiencing with CMMC because they neglected or they were unaware of the DFAR 7012 requirement that has existed for over five years. And now they're trying to burn down five, six years of organizational debt in the yeah. six to 12 months we have left before CMMC becomes active. Which is the basis of my next question. And I know we need to get to the entrepreneurship side, which we will, but I have heard that a lot of companies are still not focusing on CMMC because it hasn't been officially, you know, the deadline hasn't been set. And that this is a little bit of a misnomer going on with a bunch of companies that just because CMMC hasn't officially been, you know, said that this is when it's going to start becoming, an, um, I guess, a requirement of an audit certification doesn't mean you shouldn't already be getting ready for that. Are you seeing that? Is that what you're experiencing? Or are you seeing massive amounts of companies that are subject to it saying, let's get ready. Let's It's coming. So let's just get ready now. The perception is shifting a bit more to it's going to happen, but there's still a, a large amount of companies that have the let's wait and see mentality. And for me, uh, trying to do some myth busting, right? Because most of the time, mm -hmm. they just wait and see. They throw out, hey, rulemaking has been, ha been happening forever. Well, true, it has been a long time. Um, but that does nothing to actually mean that the rule is not going to happen. It, it actually kind of lends itself to the opposite. It's such a large impact and large change to the way we do business that it has to go through a lengthier rulemaking process. Also, um, the CMC program and the, the DOD program office that is driving this did themselves no favors with CMMC model one mm -hmm. model one had a lot of maturity aspects to it. it it redid a lot of the terminology rather than just pointing directly to 800-171 um, documentation and, and added this level of confusion and complexity around the CMMC requirements that did nobody any favors they reverted they retracted model one they went into a period of silence eventually released model two and that in itself was well model two is a fantastic change um, much more straightforward much more clear pointing directly to 800-171 for, for cmmc level two um, it also led 
to those who are already inclined to be you know, non-believers that CMMC is happening. It, it kind of led to that credence of, oh, they've changed it yet again. You know, they're never actually going to publish it. But the last thing I'll say about this, since um, you know, you could look at, hey, it's codified in you know, 32 CFR and, and 48 CFR, and those are big deals. But if you read the most recently published 2023 um, cybersecurity defense plan, um, the DOD's you know, concept of cybersecurity from 2023, or at least the, you know, the unclassified summary that they just released, you'll see it. CMMC is explicitly stated in the document that was just released a few weeks ago as this is critical to our attempts at preventing China's continued espionage in our defense industrial base that is, that is eroding our military advantage. So the fact that even though we've gone through years of rulemaking and kind of repeated rulemaking and changes, it it is still very much a, a codified priority for the DOD and in Congress. Um, so it, it's not going anywhere. It, it may take a bit longer than everybody thought and desired for it to get out the door in terms of those who are championing it, but you know, it is, it is coming. And, and to your point that you made earlier, it is already a DFAR that companies have this, have cybersecurity programs in place that, that are, um, uh, compliant with these particular control set. And so it's really just, you're just building up more of that debt of um, not of not being ready, not having the process in place and having to go back and, and uh, put them in place uh, really fast once <laughs> once CMMC does go into effect. Right, and that's the ironic part about it, right? Even if CMMC never actually made it out the door, the mm-hmm. only thing that changes is now instead of having a third party come assess you, you can s- stay with yourself assessments from 800-171, but the control requirements still have to be there. And if you're one of the companies that are just kind of flippantly putting in your SPRS score and, and thinking, well, fine, you should pay attention to the increase of false claim acts that are being adjudicated uh, and penalties are being distributed to companies who are being um, mm-hmm. faithful about their security posture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I promise we'd go move on to the entrepreneur part. So you started your own firm and what, what was, uh, or how, let's just talk, let's do a broad question. How's it going? It's going well. You know, I, I founded this uh, LLC just a bit ago. I, after a period of time, you know, I got to the point where, Hey, I have, you know, I feel like I have a, a decent amount of subject expertise in this particular area. And I see that there's a, there's a need for that in particular, the, you know, the SMB space, right. You know, mm-hmm. these large government prime state, they have you know, security departments that are hundreds, if not thousands of people strong, but a lot of these small to medium sized businesses, they don't have a security department. They don't really have awareness of security regulations. You know, they have a help desk and IT manager that's performing multiple jobs you know, under their purview. So these are the companies that really need somebody to come to them on a fractional basis because they're not going to drop. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year on a on a full time CISO, right? They, right. They, but they would bet they still need a certain level of expertise to say, "Hey, what do we need to do? Where mm-hmm. are we in relation to that, and how do we get there?" And so this is the the perfect opportunity, indeed the you know the basis of conception for the idea of a fractional CISO, which I know technically there's a difference between fractional CISO and virtual CISO, but uh, I, I pretty much use the, the terms interchangeably. Yeah, these companies that you know they can pay you know, monthly cost of, you know, maybe 10% of what they would pay a, a full-time employee of that caliber. And they get, um, you know, they get to co- get caught up to speed uh, and somebody to direct and oversee these, these project endeavors for which they don't currently have anybody who's, you know, subject matter expert in that. Yeah. So I saw the need for that. 
Um, I presumed I could fill some of that need, and so I, I founded my LLC and um, you have been plotting away at it ever since. Um, you know, a lot of lessons learned from being an entrepreneur. If you build it, they don't necessarily come, uh, unlike traditional advice, because you know, sometimes you have to convince people that they do indeed have a problem that needs solving before you can even have that conversation of how do we go about solving this problem? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of my favorite questions to ask on this podcast is what is the most difficult thing about starting your own firm? Um, I feel like you're starting to touch on it with that comment. Being a salesperson, that for me is by far the most difficult. I, you know, working through the administrative stuff of actually starting a company, you know, that just takes a little bit of time. Having the subject matter expertise to perform these skills, I mean, that obviously took years to develop. But once you once you get to the point where you're deciding to launch your own company, presumably you have those skills. So that's all well and good. Got those, you know, website artifacts, everything all set to go, and then just kind of sitting at my desk saying, okay, where is everybody? Shouldn't they be knocking <laughs> down my doors, getting quotes and enlisting my services? So it was a long journey. It's still, it's still my hardest part of my journey of you know, generating leads, finding, being that salesperson, which is, is not natural to me, nor am I good at it. Well, uh, is it, well, if the fact that you have your own firm and that you're trying is, is really so much of the, of the challenge. Um, well, what do you enjoy about your own business? I like, I can tailor the the client base, like who, who I'm actually think I'm best positioned to help. Uh, rather than, you know, when you have a traditional job, obviously, you know, you do, um, um, which I still have, but you do, you know, you do what what the business needs, right? Um, as a virtual assistant, I focus on a smaller scope but very deep in that scope so i i mm -hmm. services are explicitly what i'm very good at and what i enjoy doing because i believe those two kind of go hand in hand and and in in that context i don't have to do the rest which a you know makes it more enjoyable for me but also it, it allows me to be more focused with my time producing you know a bigger value for for each hour spent so to speak so um, just being able to deep dive in the areas that i enjoy the most is probably the most enjoyable part about running your own business in my mind well, also, I think based on what we talked about for a while about your skill set and where your focus is for your firm, you, because you've identified really a specific customer, I'm going to presume that you will grow pretty rapidly because one of the things I have found, at least of being an entrepreneur, is if you don't have that focus on who is your target customer, so you're talking to them, they're your audience, you know who your audience is, you've really learned what you can you know, sell to them in terms of your services, but also market yourself is so critical early on. Um, so I, I think it, I think you've definitely hit something that is a good balance. I'm a little bit curious. Is it is it just you right now as in your LLC? It is just me. I hope to someday grow to have the problem of needing to add more employees. But you know, right now I'm alone and unafraid. <laughs> that that grit is key. Um, and, and you answered the next question, which is about growing the business. Any tools, things that you're doing right now that help you scale yourself? So I think my mentality, I've gone through a few iterations of my business mindset, right? Starting out a little bit broader and, and realizing I need to narrow it, um, narrow it more specifically. But as I look at my own business processes, how I uh, manage the clients I currently have, how I generate new leads, how, how I take a client from whatever state of readiness to being ready. 
Um, it it kind of comes down to um, a phrase. Everybody's heard the phrase be be brilliant in the basics, but I've as I've mulled that over, I've actually adopted a, a turn on that phrase and it's called um, be brutal with the basics. And what I mean by that is be uncompromising in your pursuit of, of these basic fundamentals, right? By their nature, basics, you don't really need to be brilliant in basics, so the basic stuff. But the number one problem I see with these companies that I come in and I assess is that we can't even get to the basics because things are so convoluted, they're complex. We've experienced you know, business process creep, business technology creep. It's We have to ruthlessly pursue an establishment of the basics before we can do anything else. And so I've turned that, as I've experienced that with the clients, I've actually turned that thought around in my own, how, how do I build my business and how do mm-hmm. I handle clients? And it's, Smart. I need to be brutal with my basics, perform them so well, you know, that there's no need to be brilliant. I just, you know, I have it in muscle memory and I, I do the, the right action every time, you know, no matter how uncomfortable or unenjoyable that action is. And it's, that's very, very smart. Um, we're running out of time, which I can't believe I, this has gone so quickly, but I do have a couple of quick fire questions that kind of tail on a little bit to that, which is, uh, this is one of my favorite questions, actually. Your number one security tip that you tell your friends at social events. Reduce complexity. I mean, that kind of goes hand in hand with be brutal with the basics, but mm-hmm. if, there's one thing you should do before you bother doing anything else, before you bother trying to design your plan of action and milestones or, or whatever else it may be, do, and we can maybe call this by a different name, um, attack surface reduction, right? As a more cybersecurity term. Yeah, yeah. Before you bother procuring technology, developing business processes, codifying things, et cetera, like look at your environment, understand the complexity that's in it, which may take some time and reduce it as much as you can aggressively reduce the attack service. And then, then from that point, now design your security architecture. Hmm. I love that. Um, anyone you'd recommend that you think I should interview for the podcast? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I've had a friend for a few years. His name is Matt Donato. Um, he currently works, he's a partner at Echelon Risk and Cyber. Okay. Uh, do many things to include virtual CISO services, but um, him and I have been uh, keeping in touch for a few years and exchanged ideas, this and that. So I think he would be, um, I think he would provide some valuable insights in this type of context. Okay, great. Um, Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. This has really been fascinating. I am really interested in how things are going to go with CMMC. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Can you please tell the listeners where they can find you? Yes, absolutely. So you can go to my webpage at uh, redwoodcyberservices.com. Uh, or email me at nick.bakewa at redwoodcyberservices.com. Great. And I I want the listeners to go check out your LinkedIn page because I I said this before we started recording, but you're, the, <laughs> this, the way you write your LinkedIn page had me laughing and I uh, just I love the sense of humor that you bring to it. So uh, hopefully that encourages people to go check that out too. Um, And if you are listening, you can find this blog and all of our podcasts on Substack and Apple Podcasts at the Security Expert Marketplace. Nicholas, thanks again and talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye.